Hello and welcome. Thank you for downloading this week's Sermon and Prayers of Intercession from the English Reformed Church Amsterdam. We hope you will enjoy what you are about to hear and that you will be blessed. Well, what an appropriate text for this Sunday that brings to a close the week of prayer for Christian unity. Christ commanded that his disciples should be one. He said that the world would judge whether or not God had sent Jesus by his followers' unity. And that's troubling because the church of Jesus Christ has all too often echoed the church at Corinth. I'm a Protestant. I'm a Roman Catholic. I'm a Presbyterian. I'm a Methodist. I'm an Evangelical. I'm a liberal. And so on and on. And Christians have tortured and killed each other mercilessly in devotion to their particular tribe. You may have been aware of the death last week of the writer and comedian Terry Jones, a founder member of the surreal comedy show Monty Python's Flying Circus. Terry Jones directed and wrote much of the film Life of Brian, which the men's group are going to be watching this week. And Jones's death provoked recollections 
of how he and the Monty Python team had the idea of writing a comedy about the life of Christ. So they all went away and read the Gospels. When they did, however, they concluded that there was really nothing laughable or absurd about Jesus. What was laughable and absurd was his followers and what they did to his message, and hence the life of Brian. Christians have taken Christ's profound message of reconciliation and sown the seeds of division and intolerance to our shame. And of course, just at the ch as the church in Corinth came to reflect rather than to challenge the city of Corinth, so the church comes to reflect the broken and fragmented world in which we live. A world divided politically, divided culturally, divided religiously, divided economically, fractured along every conceivable fault line. And I want this morning just to pick out two features of our world which threaten conflict and division. The first is nationalism. Those like me who are from the United Kingdom are particularly aware of two nationalist voices that are currently fairly strident over there. Look at the map of the United Kingdom after the recent general election and you see Scotland dominated by the Scottish National Party and England dominated by the pro-Brexit Conservative Party which has campaigned to take back control and to recapture that Churchillian national spirit that saw us through the war. And across the Atlantic, a president trumpets, make America great again, and pursues a raft of protectionist policies that appeal to a nationalist spirit. And elsewhere around the globe, nationalist sympathies are on the rise, to some degree in reaction to globalization and the increasing blurring of national boundaries and identities. The ascent of nationalism is surely a feature of our times. But the other phenomenon which is a threat to unity and community is what we have come to call identity politics. Now, some of us are old enough to recall the liberation movements of the 60s and 70s, the rise of feminism, the demand for equal rights for ethnic minorities, the demand for equality for what we now call the LGBT community, the demand for justice for the disabled. And this has led to a heightened awareness of how society can be oppressive when it is cast in the image of one dominant group, be it white or male or straight or able-bodied or old. And of course, this has led to something of a social revolution 
where people no longer identify in the traditional categories of left or right, or along traditional party lines, or even along nationalistic lines, they identify according to their particular experience of oppression. And this has sometimes led to a shrill and confrontational stance against anyone who is deemed to have transgressed these zones of liberation. Such people are outed and often vilified on social media, and they are defined solely in terms of their transgression. So, for example, in the current US presidential election, Senator Joe Biden has been vociferously exposed for certain votes he cast decades ago in certain, about certain desegregationist policies. And he's labeled now in some quarters as a closet racist, despite his very strong support among black voters. And suddenly the world echoes with a conflicting babel of oppressed voices. Victims who are determined that they will be victims no longer and insisting sometimes that their oppression is worse than anybody else's. I recall once in the United States attending a lecture in which a professor argued that racism was America's original sin. And afterwards, he was surrounded by women, some of them in tears, who were haranguing him for prioritizing racism over sexism. And so new alliances are formed based on the experience of oppression and marginalization, and traditional groupings and alliances are reconfigured and it seems that politics will never be the same again. So what are Christians to say to all of this? Have we anything to say? Well, let's take the issue of nationalism. In some quarters, this is a dirty word, but actually there is a strong affirmation of nations and national identity in the Bible. In the book of Genesis, God creates nations as part of God's ordering of the world, and national characteristics and cultures are part of the richness of creation. And on the day of Pentecost, People in Jerusalem hear languages from all over the world being spoken. There is not one universal language, but a rich diversity of tongues and accents. And in the book of Revelation, people from every tribe and tongue are pictured gathered around the throne of God and there is no suggestion that national characteristics are eclipsed or that all cultural colors bleed into one. And if there is an argument for having national flags in church 
and that is very debatable, but if there is an argument, it is that flags represent the diversity, the national diversity of God's good world, and the more, the merrier. Similarly, in regard to identity politics, many Christians will thank God for the liberation movements of recent decades, the exposure of covert oppression. Anyone who believes in sin will recognize how sin infects human institutions and structures, and anyone who understands salvation will rejoice in the dismantling of unjust oppressive structures and institutions. For Christians, however, there is just one caveat. And here I want to make a distinction between what is ultimate and what is penultimate. In other words, what matters above all and what is of secondary importance. Now take, for example, nationalism. I am passionate about Scotland. And last night I rejoiced to celebrate the poetry of Scotland's national poet, Robert Burns, here at our Burns Evening. As a Christian, I cherish and thank God for all that is distinctive about Scotland. Ultimately, ultimately, in terms of nationality, I belong not to Scotland, but to God's holy nation where Christ rules. So when I sign a visitor's book and I'm asked to stipulate my nationality, I take great joy in writing Christian for that is my ultimate identity. Scottish or any other national identity is affirmed by the gospel, but it is affirmed as secondary, penultimate. And when it becomes ultimate, then it becomes very dangerous. Similarly, in terms of my faith, I know why I am a Protestant and a Presbyterian, and there are features of that church polity which I value above all others. But God is far too big to be confined to one tradition, one denomination. And I understand why in Corinth some people aligned with Apollos and others with Paul because we all have our favorite teachers and mentors. But the Corinthians needed to be reminded that these are secondary, penultimate loyalties. And their ultimate allegiance is to Christ who transcends all these and in whom we find unity. So too, I would suggest, with identity politics. It may be 
your experience as a woman or as a minority, that it has brought you great grief and life is still far too often a struggle. And you refuse to be the victim of an oppressive world where what is essential to you is demeaned or patronized or rejected. And you fight back and God bless you in your resistance. But the gospel is that your true identity lies elsewhere. Your identity as a woman or a minority or anyone else lies ultimately in your relationship with Jesus Christ. And everything else is secondary, penultimate. And in that relationship with God through Jesus Christ, all that you are is affirmed and all that you are is all that is denied to you is upheld and you become truly you. And remember, the Christ in whom you find your true self was himself a victim of the oppressive system. And that system tried to crush him, but he rose above it. And in relationship with Christ, therefore, you are bound in love with one who defeated the system. And so there is power in the cross. There is power in a crucified Savior. He was a victim of the system, but he rose and triumphed over it and escaped its clutches. And in relationship with him, therefore, the identities of the oppressed are safe and secure. And so our passage ends on a defiant note. The cross of Christ will not be emptied of its power. And so we return to our familiar world, the world of Corinth, and the world familiar to us today. A conflicted world where loyalties and identities clash and become the cause of conflict and division. But we return too to Paul's vision of the church. A space where the oppressor and the oppressed can sit down together peaceably at the table of fellowship koinonia, and together we can affirm the penultimate and the wonderful variety and diversity of God's good world and all the difference that it contains. But we also celebrate the ultimate, the living God in whom we find our unity and our liberation and in whose Christ our true selves are to These are our prayers of intercession. On behalf of our congregation, may my words be worthy. Let us pray. Dear God, we pray for your world in all its extraordinary breadth and depth, 
with all its many wonders. Teach us not to take the astonishing beauty of your creation for granted. Help us to be more mindful in the ways in which we live on this planet. May our footprints be softer, our use of resources gentler. Remind us of your calling to live in harmony with our creation. We pray for the peoples and places of this world. So many languages, cultures, traditions, so many ways of thinking, of doing, of being, teach us to celebrate the different and not to cause division. Help us to respect one another. May our words raise each other up, our actions bring healing, not hurt. Remind us of our calling to live as communities of peace and reconciliation. Particularly, dear God, we pray for our neighbors in the Bechainhof Kapel, just a few meters from us, and the Mennonite and Lutheran churches on the Spau and Single, with whom we have a cherished fellowship. More broadly, we pray also for the world leaders in hope that they can work through the problems that arise from living together in the world and not exploit differences nor seeds, sow seeds of fear of the other. Please, dear God, help them to be leaders that can overcome dissonance and bring us to harmony. We can be and are thankful, dear God, by the recent conference in Berlin that sought to foster a unified approach to solving conflict and external interferences in places like Libya. And the recent World Forum where leaders met to address anti-Semitism. And tomorrow, on the 75th anniversary of the liberation of the Holocaust, we will pray that we should never forget the perils of the Holocaust and what terrible consequences that can result when unity and dedication to what is right is ignored. We pray also, dear God, that the congressional leaders in the USA can find patience and wisdom to sustain them through these difficult days in Washington, D.C. We pray also for the nation of China and the terrible public health crisis that faces them from the coronavirus. These are our prayers of intercession, dear Lord, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs>